according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. As always, join me once again, if you would, in the book of Philippians. In the book of Philippians, this is our third class in our brand new study. Uh, we spent a couple years working on our way through Galatians, and uh, I believe Philippians will be on a very similar pace uh, if we can cover three chapters in a year. Uh, it's kind of the pace that we've done for First Corinthians, for Second Corinthians, uh, for Galatians, although to be fair, that last year of Galatians, we only got through two chapters instead of three. Chapter five and six was uh, a bit of a slower pace. Uh, I expect Philippians to be uh, comparable to that, and then uh, the, the plan, the intention at this point, is to follow it with Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians in that order. And so we'll work our way through the prison epistles here uh, in, a, in a back-to-back format. All right, Philippians. We're still doing introduction, though, so we're not quite ready for the, the exposition of chapter 1. And I'm going to open it up with um, some things out of uh, chapter 2. So join me, if you would, in Philippians chapter 2, and we'll pick up where we left off uh, Wednesday evening. Before we get started, remember God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. In preparation for the study of the word of God, let's take a moment for silent prayer so that each one of us as believer priests can be equipped spiritually to receive the word implanted. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before your throne of grace this morning, unworthy completely unworthy, yet made worthy. Father, here we are, uh, saved by Jesus Christ and recipients of his righteousness, of his merit. I thank you, Father, in his name we are are here before you now as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to lead us in all things, even the deep things of God. Bless our study this morning, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, in our background so far, we've gone through five points of study uh, as in terms of introduction, and uh, we're in the midst of uh, the sixth point, the uh, aspects of uh, when it was written and from where, and some of the clues that we have in what I'm calling the Philippian travelogue of, uh, of chapter two. Written by Paul and Timothy, uh, listing Timothy as his co-author, which Paul does in so many of his epistles. Uh, but it does not mention the apostolic office. That makes it unusual. Paul will typically mention himself as an apostle, uh, oftentimes in confrontational epistles where maybe like First and Second Corinthians, he's defending his apostleship, or there's other reasons why he, he mentions himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. As he writes to the Philippians, however, there's no need to defend his apostleship and not no reference to him as an apostle. It's just simply Paul and Timothy bondservants of Christ Jesus. To the saints at Philippi, together with overseers and deacons. And it's uh, unique among all of Paul's epistles that he starts it this way. The address is key. I think the address helps us to identify uh, a, uh, a, the basis for the difference between a Bible study and a local church. That when you have a local church, when you have a lampstand that is planted, it's not just believers that are, that are gathered together informally or believers that are gathered together, um, for, for Bible study or mutual fellowship or encouragement, but it actually is a formal lampstand whereupon which Jesus Christ walks in the midst. Revelation tells us that. He walks in the midst of every lampstand. And every lampstand has a right-hand messenger. Every lampstand has an angel or a star that's personally held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. And so on that basis, then, you can delineate between a uh, a fellowship or a Bible study or an, an informal Christian gathering and a local church as the New Testament defines it. And here we see it where we have the offices in view, the overseers and the deacons. And these offices we'll spend some time with when we come to this verse in the exposition. Uh, in other words, right after the introduction, we'll, we'll start with this to uh, demonstrate what a local church is and how it's structured with overseers and deacons. Thirdly, we know for a fact that it was written during an imprisonment. Uh, the debate comes not whether he was imprisoned or not. The debate comes into, well, which imprisonment? From where? From Rome, from Caesarea, from Ephesus? Uh, which imprisonment? And depending on uh, w- what you conclude based upon the evidence, it will affect how you understand it. Uh, traditionally, of course, it's written from Rome. 
uh, alternatively written from Caesarea, but I think preferably, much more likely, from Ephesus and what we assume to be uh, either one, two, or even three uh, Ephesian imprisonments during the three years that Paul spent there in uh, the, the course of Acts 19 and the third missionary journey. And of course, the dating of the epistle depends on which imprisonment you choose and uh, some of the other evidence there as well. Skipping through this, we've looked at the history in the background of Philippi. If you're a history buff or a geography geek, uh, then you like this kind of stuff. And, and the, the background on Philippi is, uh, is important, particularly its place as a colony. It is a Roman colony. And never mind the fact that it's on Macedonian soil or it's within you know, a, a, a territory that we might not associate with Italy or, or Rome, as it were. The city itself, Philippi, is a Roman colony. So when you're in Philippi, you're on Roman soil. And the citizens of Philippi are Roman citizens. And so that becomes significant because Philippians is the book of the New Testament that makes the, the big deal out of the fact that our citizenship is in heaven, from which we're eagerly awaiting the uh, the revelation of our Savior and uh, the principles that come from that. We looked at the maps of the missionary journeys, spent a lot of time on that, and now where we were on Wednesday, I want to get right back to it again. Philippians 2, verses 19 through 24, followed by verses 25 through 30. You say, well, that's silly. Why don't you just say 19 through 30? <laughs> okay, uh, aren't those sections together? Well, yeah, they are. And really what I ought to do is put the 25 through 30 up front and then the 19 through 24. I ought to reverse those paragraphs simply for the sake of describing for us this morning what we're looking at. We're looking at past travels, the past travels of Epaphroditus that, that were accomplished before this book was written. Then the immediate travels of Timothy, what Timothy is, or Paul is uh, fixing to, right, fixing to do. That great expression I got introduced to when I moved to Texas, that fixing to thing. We never had that in, in, on the West Coast. But uh, Paul was fixing to send Timothy to, to Philippi. And then uh, the subsequent travels of Epaphroditus, what Epaphroditus will travel when, he, when Paul finishes the book of Philippians, most likely as the courier of uh, the Philippian letter itself. And then ultimately the, the ultimately intended travels of Paul. And these are important not only just for the sake of itinerary purposes, but also to understand the, uh, the, the motivation for why this letter was even written in the first place and all of the details that go into it and that perhaps we overlook because we're 21st century American Christians and we fail to realize uh, the alien nature of the ancient world <laughs> being for what it is. All right. So. I'll just pick it up at verse 19. He says, um, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Well, no, let me take it out of order. Let's go down to 25, okay? Before, before the, the Timothy plans, uh, let's talk about Epaphroditus. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. All right, and so when we get to here and we do the exposition, we're going to learn some fascinating things, including the word messenger there is not angelos, it's apostolos. He is your apostle. He is your commissioned messenger, your commissioned apostle. All right, not as a gift or a fellow apostle with Paul, but the Philippian apostle, the agent in charge of sending these funds, and uh, who did so. All right, your apostolos and minister. And so we have the, the deacon service uh, ministry, as we understand it, uh, along with the liturgical service of, of ministry that takes place in uh, such a context. Minister to my need. So right there we have a clue. Right there we recognize that there has been some travel that led up to the writing of this book. The Philippians had heard that Paul was in jail. And so they commissioned Epaphroditus. They gave him an apostolic commission to travel to Paul to minister to his needs on their behalf to complete what was deficient in their service. And that's not Paul insulting them. That's their, that's the terms of their commission. And so we have, there's time that has to take place. And all of this, by the way, I think argues against Rome as the place of imprisonment because of the distance involved, because of the time required and the expense to travel that length of time and all the back and forth trips that this chapter demands. 
And so uh, here, here we have it. All right. And so uh, Epaphras, so they get word. So they get word that, that Paul is in prison. How long does that take? How long? Because remember, they didn't get it on Facebook. They didn't get it on Twitter. They didn't get the email. They didn't get the text message. In the ancient world, and even up until fairly recently, uh, news didn't travel as fast as it travels today, obviously. And so for word to get to Philippi that Paul's in prison, wherever he's in prison, Rome, Caesarea, Ephesus, or elsewhere, wherever he is, for news to reach, feet have to have to travel, right? Human feet, donkey feet, horse feet, some kind of feet, or a boat, some kind of sail, some kind of journey has to happen. Because they're not just going to fire off an email. There's going to be, there could be a scroll, sure, but it's going to be a human hand that carries that scroll. And so news reaches Philippi that Paul is in prison. So they dispatch Epaphroditus. How long does that take? <laughs> How long does it take for Epaphroditus to travel from Philippi to Ephesus? It's the shortest of all our options. Caesarea would be longer. Rome would be longer. All right. And, uh, and that. Because he was longing for you. Let me get back here to the text. Philippians 2, your apostle and minister to my need. Uh, verse 26, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. More news, okay? More journeys. So um, at some point in the process, Epaphroditus got sick. Part of the travels, part of whatever. He's in Philippi or he's in the, the Ephesus, I believe. It's an Ephesian imprisonment. So he's in Ephesus with Paul, ministering to Paul's need, and he gets sick. Well, how long does that take? And it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse. How long does that take? And it gets so bad now, we're told that he was near the point of death. It gets so bad now that somebody says, you know what? We ought to send word back to Philippi that you need prayer. <laughs> you know, um, Somehow news gets back to Philippi that Epaphroditus is sick. What is that? How long does that take? We're talking another journey. Somebody had to walk you know, from Ephesus or wherever to Philippi and say, hey, let's get some prayer going here for Epaphroditus because he's sick. Not only had they heard that Epaphroditus was sick, but then Epaphroditus had heard that they had heard that Epaphroditus was sick. Did you follow that? Because that made Epaphroditus distressed. The whole point here, he was longing for you all. He was distressed. Why was he distressed? You know, as if you want to add insult to injury, right? You want to add additional spiritual um, uh, struggles on top of the physical sickness. Word gets back to him that the Philippians had been notified. See, and I'm sure Epaphroditus was one of those tough guys that said, oh, no, no, I don't need any prayer. No, don't bother. Don't tell him. You know, he kind of blows it off because he, he would much rather that people are praying for, uh, maybe praying for Paul's imprisonment more so than his health. Okay, you know anybody like that? And uh, anyway, so then when he learns that they heard about it, when he heard that they heard, that causes him distress. But for him to hear that they had heard requires another trip, another one-way trip between Philippi and Ephesus. See, and this is part of why we do conclude Ephesus. There's other reasons as well, but the idea of all of these back and forth from Philippi to Rome become such a distance and such a time factor that it's, it's, uh, it's highly problematic in, uh, in different ways. All right, verse 27 then. Indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me so that I will not have sorrow upon sorrow. And this is coming from the guy, Paul, who had healed sickness before. He'd raised somebody from the dead. He, he had performed miracles but we learn here at this point in the in the first century, in the mid-50s, probably 56, 57, that uh, the, the healing gifts were already becoming diminished. They were already becoming less common and, and uh, in the more and more infrequent aspect of that. So verse 28, Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly. And so verse 28 speaks of, of, uh, of a completed journey or an ongoing journey, something in the past, and I think this is the, the evidence here in, in Philippians 2.28 that Epaphroditus is the courier. 
Epaphroditus is the one that brings Philippians to the Philippians, right? Uh, that we have Tychicus who brings Colossians to Colossae. He, bring, he brings uh, Philemon to, to Philemon, also in Colossae. All right, but it's Epaphroditus who is the courier that, that carries the scroll, carries the book of Philippians to the uh, Philippian believers. So I have sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy. Hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. There's the expression. All right, and I don't think that's Paul using that expression, insulting them. I think that was their expression that they incorporated into Epaphroditus' apostolic commission. And we'll talk about that more under point seven when we talk about the money problems that uh, Philippi had, the, the money problems that bothered them for a season until the Lord resolved it. And then uh, they came through that season and, and once again had money uh, grace that they were able to provide for the Apostle Paul. So that's the second part there. That's verses 25 through 30. Now when we back up to verses 19 through 24, we have some future travel plans that they're going to read about. They're going to read about in this letter because Epaphroditus carried it to them and handed it to them. And as they read it, it's going to say now, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Now we have yet another journey between Ephesus and, and Philippi. And this is going to be Timothy's journey. So, uh, so that I also, and, and keep in mind, this is kind of curious too, because this is Paul in Ephesus staying in Ephesus and urging Timothy to depart from Macedonia. Does that ring any bells? It's like the reverse of how 1 Timothy opens up when Paul says, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, you remain on at Ephesus in order to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And so these are little clues, and we pick up on them, and, and I think they're vital to, for the sequence and the, and the chronology of the, of the Pauline epistles. And all too often we just blow over it like, uh, okay, big deal. You know, it's a throwaway detail. They say, get to the real meat, get to the real doctrine. Well, we're getting there. So I hope to send Timothy to you shortly. That requires a journey from Ephesus to Philippi. So that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. That requires a return trip. That requires Timothy coming back or somebody else coming back, carrying a, a scroll that Timothy might write. You know, but it takes some, somebody's feet have to come back from Philippi to Ephesus for Paul to learn of your condition. And then I, I'm taking the time to walk us through this. I did it on Wednesday. I'm doing it again this morning so that we don't, we don't miss this because none of this is necessary in, in our day and age, <laughs> right? We can just pull the phone out of our pocket and we can text Siberia and uh, a pastor friend there in Krasnoyarsk and say, hey, how you doing? Is your daughter still sick? And he can text back, oh, no, she's through with that. We're great. And we get word like that, you know, multiple times in a day if we want to. Not so in uh, the first century. <clears throat> There's other aspects on this here, too. I don't want to miss today, but I'll bring it back later. <clears throat> Notice verse 20. I have no one else. And what he says here, I have no one else qualified to make this journey here that, that Timothy is about to make. And, and what does it take to travel from Ephesus to Philippi? Well, it's more than just the travel. It's the spiritual perspective to have the right ministry when he gets there. He says, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. When Timothy arrives, he's going to be there in sacrificial love. He's going to be there laying down his life for the brethren if that's what the Lord calls for that the other men in training are still developing this humility, still developing this mindset. The book of Philippians is all about mindset. If you haven't figured that out yet, you will soon. Because chapter 2 says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And at this point, of all the men under training, including some good men, they're just not there yet, not where Timothy is. We'll discuss that. It's uh, you know more than just the academics of Greek and Hebrew and systematic theology and church history and all the the, the information that you pour into a, a pastor to prepare him for the pulpit. Got to have this hard attitude of a shepherd, 
And if that's not there yet, then that man's not ready yet. Don't lay hands on a man too hastily and, uh, in those issues. All right. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth. Proven worth. And there's the concepts there of faithfulness in little things being entrusted with bigger things. There's principles there of dokimazo evaluation, whereby God tests us for our approval. Somebody that's worthy, we're, we're told to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. You know of his proven worth. Now here's what they know. He served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. This points back to Acts 16. This points back to Paul's second missionary journey in the time when Paul and Silvanus and Timothy were passing through Macedonia and Paul and Silvanus were jailed. They spent a night in jail. Okay, Had revival that night and more the next morning. Got that jailer saved the next morning in his household. But this was the exposure. And Timothy at this point is you know, a 10-year-old little boy. I'm guessing. All right, As I put my framework together, my timeline... From uh, from 50 A.D. back backdated to about 40 A.D. when uh, I believe Timothy would have been born. All right, and all of that is just guesswork, by the way, from the fact that in uh, in First Timothy in say 62, 64, let no one despise thy youth. Okay, and so the, all of this guesswork is how old would Timothy have been in 64 if he could have been despised for his youth. That kind of gives us a, a ballpark range. All right? So maybe I'm off and you've got better guesses than I do, but um, we'll see about that. All right. So, um, but this is their exposure, which, by the way, also indicates how many times have they met Timothy? How many times have they met Paul? How many times has he been through Philippi? If their memory of Timothy was this little kid... Well, it's been a few years since then, all right? He's not, he's not 10 years old anymore, see? It's been seven. He's 17 now. He's not the little kid that he was. But that's what they remember, right? That's what they remember. Like when I go home to Seattle and I, I go to my childhood church and there's people there that still call me Bobby. You know, it's just, I haven't been called Bobby since, man, the Reagan administration or something. It's been a while. And... Uh, well, there it is. This is what they remember of Timothy. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately, immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. He's facing a trial whereby the outcome is in doubt. He doesn't know if he's going to live or if he's going to die. He doesn't, and he doesn't know which to choose either. In chapter 1, he kind of debates it, thinking, wow, I get to go to heaven. Wow, wait a minute, there's more work to do. And, and he's hard-pressed to choose which one he's rooting for. All right, and uh, I'm going to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. I don't think that fits the Roman imprisonment. I don't think that fits the Caesarean imprisonment. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. And then the, the ultimate intended travel of Paul, that he also will arrive at a future point of time. So this is the Philippian travel log, and it gives us all this information here as it relates to that. Let me Real quickly, let me read um, the commentary I, I introduced to you on Wednesday. This is the word biblical commentary, which sometimes is very liberal, and you want to be cautious on uh, certain aspects. But the geography and the linguistics and some other things are just absolutely solid. But in the word biblical commentary in the introduction here of the, of the Philippians volume. By the way, this is the revised volume. And it's kind of interesting to compare the, the original with the revised. Same authors, but they changed their views. In the original edition, they had selected the, the uh, Caesarean imprisonment. And on the revised edition, they have, they're now going with the Ephesian imprisonment as the date and the source for the book of, of uh, Philippians. Anyway, he runs through a, uh, an indication here. Several trips were made back and forth between Philippi and the place from which Paul wrote Philippians, all within the time of his imprisonment. So in addressing this last point, and he runs through an A through E outline here. News traveled to Philippi of Paul's arrest. So how long did that take? 
The Philippians therefore sent Epaphroditus to Paul with a gift to aid him in his distress. How long did that take? Assuming, you know, you know, do we assume that he just jumped up and, and departed on the same day the news arrived? Or, or what kind of time does it take to prep for a journey like that? Because you have to assemble the funds and you have to assemble the, the logistics of making a journey of that nature. Uh, thirdly, news of Epaphroditus' illness was sent back to Philippi. Fourthly, uh, or D, word that the Philippians were greatly concerned about Epaphroditus reached Paul. So we've got four of these one-way trips already. And then beyond that, Paul hoped to send, and then I think what's not included here is, in my outline, better than this one, E would be then Epaphroditus was dispatched back to them carrying this epistle. Okay, And then Paul hoped to send Timothy to the Philippians and get encouragement back from them before he himself set off for, for Philippi. So anyway, this is a lot of back and forth. And if you read Silva, he, uh, he blows it off. He says, nah, no big deal. He underplays the force of the adverb and dismisses the test of distance, calls it a pseudo-problem. Yet he is in error in thinking that Timothy and Epaphroditus traveled as imperial couriers, averaging in part 50 miles a day. That's not just an error, that's a gross error. I think it's a ludicrous assumption that, that they had imperial sanction to use the Roman courier network and, and ride on the Roman horses on the Roman roads and have, have, uh, have full, uh, full privileges of that. And that's just a monster assumption he makes based upon the little uh, inferences such as the pra- mention of the praetorian uh, in chapter 1 or Caesar's household in chapter 4. Anyway, there's more on that and uh, we'll probably reference that a couple more times in the uh, coming classes. All right, now beyond the travel log, here's, uh, here's another point of study. I, I think the finances are important. Point seven, Philippians grace giving. The Philippians grace giving, which we, we read about in this book. We've already studied it at length in our Second Corinthians study because it was a dominant theme in Second Corinthians, also mentioned in Romans, which uh, in, in this model uh, gets written here shortly thereafter. But Romans 15, verses 26 through 28, along with uh, these passages here. What we want to understand about the Philippians is that they were such a grace-oriented believe, uh, flock that they counted it a privilege to be able to give, and to give abundantly, to give according to their ability and beyond their ability. They viewed it as, as their birthright. They viewed it as their, their blessing, especially if the object of their, of their benevolence was Jewish believers in Jerusalem. That was huge because they, they felt as Gentiles that they, they had a sense of obligation. They had a sense of, of appreciation for the, uh, the, the birth of the church coming in Jerusalem the way that it did. So when they could becomes important. When could they give? When they could not. When they could not give. Paul's going to talk about that. And then when they could once again. When they could once again. And this is what we read about here in uh, Philippians 4. And then when they could once again, man, when their budget was back on track and they, they did beyond their ability, absolutely beyond their ability. And so let's flip over to chapter 4 and you'll see what I'm talking about here. I expect, you know, they, <laughs> to put it in our terms today, you know, they have an annual business meeting. It's supposed to be within six weeks of the uh, beginning of the new fiscal year. And uh, uh, the, the deacons have to give a report. The treasurer has to give a report of the, the, uh, the, the finances the uh, expenses and the income and the balance and the accounts and think everything we did last week in uh, in our church business meeting and uh, and there's occasions when you have an abundant year there's occasions when out of nowhere or out of wherever the uh, a check comes in the mail and we say thank you lord and and then there's other occasions when we have a very thin year all right and we learn what paul learns we learn about abundance we learn about the thin year as well. So in Philippians 4, verses 15 through 19, um, and even backing up a little bit here just for the, the context on this, verse 10 says, um, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. 
Well, even backing up to verse 9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Now that heard and seen, we're going to get in chapter 1 as well, and it gets built upon here with learned and received, okay? which is going to include um, scripture writing, it's going to include other messengers, other teachers, but heard and seen in me. The visit in Acts 16 is what they saw. His current imprisonment is what they've heard. Anyway, uh, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Part of the evidence we'll see here shortly that Paul had only been to Philippi once when he writes the book of Philippians. Um, and then verse 10, but I received in the Lord greatly, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and now at last, at last, you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So if you're in a thin season, you don't have the opportunity, and you want to support a ministry, but you just can't, does God hold that against you? All right? Because you can still pray, and you can still love, and you can still ask for that door to be opened again, and then when that door does open again, you have that at last attitude that now, finally, yes, it's been far too long. And that's... Uh, the attitude that's being reflected here. You lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want. Paul says, I'm not complaining because Paul has the same grace mental attitude they have. I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. And then he's recently been in a season where he's had to do that. All right. I also know how to live in prosperity. So uh, which one's better? <laughs> okay, well, they both require doctrine to be applied. They both require the appropriate grace perspective. And honestly, the prosperity is harder because of the arrogance involved and the pride and some of the other stumbling blocks that arise with that. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. <laughs> that cracks people up sometimes. What's the secret of being hungry? Well, having the divine viewpoint perspective to be content with what God provides in his grace. And uh, being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Yeah, there's a secret to being rich too. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Don't ever lose the context for that verse. I see that verse abused and misapplied and put into strange applications that this the, the setting of this chapter does not allow for. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And that's what giving is. That's what grace is. It's sharing. It's fellowship. Koinoneo is a verb and koinonia is a noun, but we're talking about sharing. We're talking about fellowship. And this is what we do at our grace giving. You have done well to share with me in my affliction. So what's the context here? They had supported before. Then they had a dry season. And now for the first time, that's being snapped. That's, they're coming out of that. All right. Now, at last, finally, a door has been opened and they are able to once again provide a gift of whatever amount. Okay. So you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Context for this, of course, that second missionary journey, Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 17, when he arrives at Thessalonica. Even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. We have other clues in Acts 17, Acts 18, when Paul finally gets into, into uh, Corinth, he has to spend a season tent making with Priscilla and Aquila. Until when? until the brethren arrived from Macedonia. And they arrived from Macedonia, led by Philippi, with the funds that allows Paul to, to get out of the tent-making business. See? And he, Paul was able to go full-time in the ministry after that. So these are the clues, all right? And we pay attention to these things. We relate to these things, see? And uh, some of you remember the, the first four years after becoming pastor, I had to work in the jail. And I... I I left. I didn't wasn't able to leave that job until after four years of doing both. Say eight years total in the jail, but four years of doing both. And then uh, it was uh, in the summer of '99 when, when the treasurer said, uh, 
How much do we have to pay you to get you, um, you know, out of jail, <laughs> to get you out of the sheriff's department? And and I said, you know, I don't know, but I like that question. That's <laughs> and it's not a lot. I'll tell you that it's not a lot. We lived in the parsonage right next door, and no rent, no utilities, and um, you know, we can be pretty meager. And that and the, this is what the Lord did, and He provided, and He blessed. And I believe he blessed the faith of this congregation. He blessed the faith of, of those deacons and, and that men that stepped out. And we've never looked back, see. And uh, some of my fellow officers, and you know Jason, one of them comes here occasionally, the fellow officers I used to work with, um, they, kept, they had a little pool going about how long it would take me to come back <laughs> and when, when I'd come crawling back trying to get my job back and whatever because uh, the sheriff at that time had just given us a 30% raise. And we had a 30% raise overnight. And a sizable, sizable increase. And all the staff was thinking, wow, what are you going to do with your extra money? What are you going to do with your extra money? And, and I said, I'm leaving it. <laughs> Lord's got other plans as far as that goes. So because of the grace of the Philippian believers and all the Macedonian churches then, the funds were sent to, excuse me, sent to uh, Corinth and Paul was freed then to pursue the ministry. But then a season came and they weren't able to. They weren't able to. Not that I seek the gift itself, verse 17, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. And this is why grace giving cannot be understood by those that are earthly minded. Those that are earthly minded cannot understand how you can give dollars to somebody and you profit. <laughs> because they just think, if anything I give you means I have less. And all they can think about, if you're earthly-minded with a secular perspective on things, temporal values, you don't understand the real profit is, uh, is heavenly. And we'll see more on that uh, next hour in, uh, with the prophet Jeremiah. All right. I seek for the profit which increases to your account, but I have received everything in full. See, once again, now one, that door is open. They've got an opportunity. Finally, they've got that opportunity which makes no sense at all to us if this is written from Rome in 62 or 60 or 61 in, in the Roman imprisonment. Because in between then, there's a monster fund they're sending to Jerusalem. And if they're sending this monster fund to Jerusalem, how come they can't you know, kick a buck or two over to Paul in the process? So I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied having received from Epaphroditus. So here we go. He's the apostle and messenger, minister to his need. He was commissioned and he came with these funds. Having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Does that language sound familiar? That's right out of Leviticus. I mean, that's Old Testament sacrifice right there, right? That is the language of, a, of, a, of an offering to the Father. And it's not butchering a goat or a bull or a ram. It's not a, but it is a sweet-smelling savior, uh, savor to the Father. And it comes about through grace-oriented believers giving in the spirit of grace. See, every time that little grace box at the back of the room, right? You, you, you don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. That's between you and the Lord. That's a sweet-smelling savor. That's what it's all about. And it's not a tithe. It's not a 10%. It's not a have-to. It's grace. It's 100% of what you want to in a beautiful, beautiful situation. All right. And in this, of course, here too is the context for my God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And how many times have I seen that verse ripped out of its context, ripped out of its setting, brought into a misapplication by believers that are totally maladjusted to the grace priorities of this chapter. And, and they're totally maladjusted to the grace priorities of this chapter, and then they wonder why this promise isn't working. Well, God, you promised that your grace, that, that, that you would supply all my need. Well, wait a minute. He is going to supply all your need. But there's a, there's a context for that. There's a setting. There's a procedure. And you don't have the, the attitude for God to do it yet. All right. That verse, I think, also answers the folks that think, well, but if I hurt, then I, if I give, then I'm, I'm going to get hurt. No. 
God won't let you get hurt when your attitude is, is right because he's the one that's shaping your attitude. He's the one that's working to will and to do of his good pleasure. And when he gives you that grace attitude, he, he provides for that. You're not going to suffer for obeying the will of God. So there's the, the perspective there. Now, what have we seen in uh, 2 Corinthians? What have we seen in, with respect to the Philippians, the Macedonians, and their grace giving? Let's go back now to 2 Corinthians uh, 11, and then we'll go back to 2 Corinthians 8. And I know, I know that's backwards, but uh, I have a reason for that. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 9. So we can see the, the, the context here. The biggest issue, I think, well, one, I can't say the biggest issue. How do you pick the biggest issue for Corinth? They had a dozen of them. All right. Um, among their tragic flaws was uh, they, they were so schismatic and they weren't grace-oriented in, in finances. He says in verse 7, Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? You know, Corinth was was big time. Corinth, uh, you know, they brought in some top dollar speakers. Corinth liked to uh, boast of the fact that they had more money than than Athens, and they could bring in the top Athenian speakers if they wanted to. They could bring in some top speakers from Sparta. They could bring in some top speakers from wherever. And and the mark of a good you know Greek rhetoric, the the mark of a good speaker was the high price that he that he demanded. You know, you don't, there's certain public speakers, you don't even get them in here without a certain, you know, baseline fee. And that's the same in the modern world, same as back then. All right. You want some of these guys on the speaking circuit, you're going to pay a, a pretty penny up front. Okay. <laughs> and then here's Paul. He shows up. He doesn't charge anything. Well, what kind of loser is that? You know, kind of schmuck. I mean, if, if he can't charge a fee, why do I want to listen to this guy? That's the mindset of these Corinthians. Totally, you know, wrong in terms of grace. So he said in verse 8, 2 Corinthians eleven eight, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. They weren't technically wages, but putting it in terms they could understand. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. When the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. So now when you think your way through those maps on the second missionary journey and the third missionary journey, as you think your way through those maps and you track the, uh, the grace giving coming from Macedonia. It followed Paul in Thessalonica. It followed Paul in Corinth. When did it stop, though? It stopped shortly thereafter is what Paul is indicating here in Philippians chapter 4. They went through a season when they couldn't support him anymore. And Paul had to, get, had to tighten his belt. And they had to, you know... <laughs> I wonder who had it worse, Jesus or Paul? Because they all had a bunch of knuckleheads following them around. And Jesus, at least, could multiply the loaves and the fishes. I don't know if Paul ever did that. Anyway, um, they had to tighten their belt. Funds got thin. You know, you can imagine Paul telling Timothy and Titus, you know, don't eat so much. <laughs> you know, whatever the case may be. Now, backing up to chapter 8 then. So we're going back in chapters, but we're going forward in time. And now we're reaching a point on that third missionary journey that when Paul is now once again passing through Philippi, passing through the Macedonian regions in Acts chapter 20. And once again, they have funds available to them, a lot. And they're putting together a monster donation for the saints in Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians 8.1 Now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. We wish to make known to you. This is a causative. This has caused you to know. You, we would not have you to be ignorant. Local church giving is a matter of public record for corporate glory. Okay? Not personal giving. Local church giving. Personal giving, that's between you and the Lord. Right hand doesn't know what left hand's doing. I'm not watching, you're not watching. That's all, uh, it's none of my business, all right? Personal giving. 
but corporate giving, the, the, when, when a flock comes together, when a flock puts funds together, when a local church contributes to something, and maybe they join with fellow churches on a cooperative effort, such as a missionary uh, endeavor or something else, now that becomes a matter of public record. And, and Paul says, I would have you to be informed. It not only is it a matter for, for multiplied glory, but I think it's a matter for magnified grace. It's a matter for a local church that's struggling in a, in a grace attitude to see another church that's not struggling in a grace attitude and to learn, to learn from that example. And Corinth definitely learned from the Philippian example. So we would not have you to be unaware, brethren. We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy... And their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. They came through that season, and man, when the floodgates opened, there it was. They were back in the giving business again, and it was beyond their ability. Um, I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. See, capacity is the capacity God gives. And the capacity God gives is larger when you've got the grace perspective to recognize it. It's a beautiful thing to see how this comes together. And they gave of their own accord. Why is that significant? Because it can't be grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver. It's got to be motivated by grace. It has to be the want to, not the have to. It can't be a guilt trip. Right? How many churches specialize in that? There's entire denominations that specialize in that. In fact, the, the large, uh, here I go, the global dominant branch of Christendom to this day, from what I've seen, they so specialize in guilt, they can, they can keep that guilt going after your loved ones are dead. And they keep that money pouring in to get them out of purgatory and all these other things. And they so manipulate the guilt and the shame and the sorrow. And don't you love Jesus? And think of your dear Aunt Sadie and all this. And, and they're, they're manipulating, seems to me, all right, from what I've observed. According to their ability, beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us. <laughs> Look at that. Realizing, man, we've been thin for a while now, and now the door is open again. Please, please, please. Begging us with much urging for the favor. They viewed it as a favor. Paul was doing them a favor, letting them participate of fellowship, participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, because they had a, a thin season. We weren't exactly expecting it, but here it is. They first gave themselves to the Lord, that's, that's the key to the whole thing, and to us. See? What did I say? You think they could kick a buck or two over to Paul as they were putting all these other monster funds together for Jerusalem? They first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And so this then becomes the pattern that is able to be introduced in Corinth, and thanks to Titus and Titus's ministry there, Corinth adjusts their thinking as well. And Corinth is going to get on board this program also with the right grace perspective, see? Because if they can't give in grace, Paul doesn't want it. If they can't give in grace, Paul won't allow it to happen. That's, that's huge, right? We don't knowingly take any gifts from any unbeliever. That's our policy. That's written in our bylaws. If an unbeliever provides a gift, we, we don't take it. We're supported by the body of Christ for the ministry of the Word of God on a voluntary grace basis on, under these biblical principles. All right. Also, this uh, fund is uh, mentioned in Romans 15, verses 26 through 28. Backing up slightly, as always. Verse 22, we get an idea of Paul's travel plans, his intended itinerary. He says, for this reason, I've often been prevented from coming to you. You know, if you're the apostle to the Gentiles, where do you, where do you think you ought to be? How about Gentile world headquarters, right? You ought to be going to Rome, the capital of the Gentile world. And how long did it take Paul to get there? 
but now with no further place for me in these regions. If God's closing the doors and it's time to move on, no further place for me in these regions. And since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you. See, he wants Rome to be the headquarters for the fourth missionary journey. Rome can become the training center, the uh, logistical base for uh, missionary work in Spain or beyond, even to England, according to some traditions. Whenever I go to Spain, I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints from Macedonia and Achaia. Praise God now that he's written 2 Corinthians. He knows, thanks to Tim, uh, Titus's arrival, Achaia is joining. That's Corinth, that's Sancria, that's Athens. Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do so. They are indebted to them. And this speaks to that attitude I was saying earlier that the Philippians had. If the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Grace giving puts, uh, puts, you know, secular currency in perspective, does it not? When you say, hey, you know, look at this. Look at the spiritual fruit. Look at the wealth that's being provided far beyond gold, far beyond silver, far beyond rubies. And, uh, you know, you think about the eternal wealth produced in a grace ministry of a local church, for example. Can you put a dollar value on that? <laughs> well, only if you want to insult it. <laughs> you know, Colonel Thames said, anytime you put a dollar value on the Word of God, you're insulting the Word of God because it's infinite. How do you put a price on that? And so you try to explain to people what the grace policy is. And we don't put prices on our booklets or on our MP3s or on anything, our notebooks, anything. You know, well, that's not right. You've, you've incurred some kind of cost in, in producing this. Yes, we have. See, grace doesn't mean without cost. <laughs> the grace that saved me had a horrible cost. My Savior paid that cost. It's free to me because that cost has been paid. And so when you respond to grace, you want to then give in grace. And you want to give, see, and if folks can't figure it out, then you, you do what you can. <laughs> Say, well, no, I insist. Give me a dollar value, $10,000. <laughs> Take it or leave it, okay? <laughs> you insisted, fine, there you go. And even that's an insult. Are you kidding me? The word of God is infinitely valuable. So um, there's the spiritual, there's the material. He says, therefore, when I have finished this, and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs. Now there's language we're going to come to in Philippians I think becomes important. There's language that Paul speaks to when, when somebody else is ministering. And then you come along and what do you do to add to it? Do you, do you put a stamp of approval on it? Do you, do you pour out a drink offering as well as a, a meat offering that's been given? How does this work? How do we combine ministries? as fellow workers in the same ministry? How is it that one person can have an offering, somebody else can come along and join with that offering in a same way, a different way, a similar way? Well, we'll deal with some of those functions in, uh, in Philippians because Paul talks about himself being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of their faith, the Philippians' faith. All right. So, um, therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. So, uh, as we look at this, again, let me just put this up for you. Um, and we, we're thinking our way through graphically, geographically. We're thinking our way through conceptually in the second missionary journey, the third missionary journey. We're trying to track when... When did the, the treasurer of, of Philippi Bible Church, okay, whoever that was, okay, um, the treasurer of Philippi Bible Church has to say, wait a minute, this is a, this is a thin season here. When did he have to put, a, put the brakes on Paul's missionary support? As, as we track it, um, this is the first time in Philippi with a jailer and that, and then through here, 
right? Brief stay and then down to Jerusalem, back to Antioch. That's the second missionary journey. Where in that, we know that funds went to Thessalonica, funds went to Corinth. But after that, when did the funds stop? All right. Because when we go to the third missionary journey, and uh, Paul comes back to Philippi, the second time recorded, second time we know about, now they got all kinds of funds, right? They got so much, they're putting this monster package together, they're sending it to Jerusalem, they gave it themselves first to the Lord, and then to Paul, they had gifts for Paul again. So what we're describing, I think the clues that we have... The travel log, I think, is, is huge, and a lot of commenters take that as their proof. But I think that their, their uh, budget is also huge from chapter 4 to show us this thin season and coming out of that thin season and then being able to resume the missionary support for Paul. It had to have happened before this third missionary journey when they put this fund together to, to bring it to the saints of Jerusalem. <coughs> Otherwise... Philippians 4, if you insist on making uh, Philippians 4 sent from Rome after all this, then Philippians 4 is rather insulting. Philippians 4 is a bit of a sour grapes. Philippians 4 is, uh, you know, finally you found some funds for me, you know, after all the bucks you shipped off to those losers in Jerusalem. I see now you finally get around to supporting my ministry again. You know, Philippians 4 almost becomes insulting if you put it in a Roman context of, of 62 AD. In other words, I think Philippians has to precede the, uh, the, the Jerusalem gift and uh, the mission that we read about there. So, more clues on that. The travel log and the budget. I think the travel log and the budget give us huge clues. Then we have some inferences. As if the case has not already been solid enough. Let's look at some additional inferences. I think, and I agree with um, the the uh, author I was reading from earlier. Inferences from uh, Philippians. Who was that author? I'm sorry, it's bugging me. Hawthorne, Gerald Hawthorne, and Ralph Martin. All right, agreeing with uh, Martin and Hawthorne that there are inferences within the book of Philippians that seem to indicate that Paul had only been there one time. He hadn't been there a second time or a third time or subsequent times. He had only been there once. And the inferences in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 4, if I can get through it here in uh, the minute and a half we have remaining. Is it getting warm in here? Can you hit the air a little bit? Thank you, sir. Well, you ought to be a deacon. I'm teasing. He's my deacon chairman. All right. Philippians 1, verse 26, verse 30. Now, as you read this, not only for what it says, but also for what is um, implied, I think um, when he talks about, I don't know if I'm going to live, if I'm going to die, which to choose. In verse 25, he says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for, the, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Now that verse by itself doesn't prove a whole lot, but it says that he's been there before and he would like to come back again. And then... Uh, he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too is from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, which happened on Paul's first visit, Acts 16, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me. When was that? That first visit of Acts 16. And now here to be in me. So you saw it once and now you're hearing about it. 
You didn't see it two or three times or repeatedly. You saw it once, and now you're hearing about it. You're hearing about it. Anyway, the contrast of seeing and hearing and the language that speaks, that infers, or implies anyway, one single visit. Same thing in chapter 2. Just as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. That my presence only is spoken of as a single event. Anyway, I didn't get through this fast enough. We'll pick up here Wednesday night, Lord willing, rapture pending. We've got 8, 9, 10, and 11 to wrap up our introduction and uh, to get the uh, the background necessary, I think, to return to chapter 1, verse 1 and begin the uh, the development. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for this background and study. Pray that you would help us, motivate us, Father, to study to show ourselves approved. Work in us that which is pleasing in your side, including diligence. Father, produce within each one of us a greater diligence. Thank you for all things, Father, for our visitors this morning, for all that you do. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.